0: Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories developing in the region. My name is Ambran Zaman, and I've just come back from Ukraine. The former Soviet country has seized the world's attention amid fears that Russia's Vladimir Putin is about to launch an invasion, despite warnings from the US and its European allies about the severe sanctions his country will likely face. Amid all the hawkish rhetoric, Turkey is the one country that inspires more confidence among Ukrainians than most. Here with us today is Ilya Kusa, an international relations analyst with the Ukrainian Institute for the Future. And I'm going to ask him to explain why Ukrainians are so fond of Turkey and its autocratic leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Thank you so much for joining us uh, at this very critical time in Ukraine. Um, welcome to our program. The main topic of our uh, discussion, uh, we have a Middle East perspective, obviously, will be Turkey and Ukraine. And as you know, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is arri- arriving in Kiev uh, on Thursday. And there's a lot of buzz about Turkey, isn't there, and its drones. Can you tell us a bit about why Turkey is you know, so much in the news these days? Well, I guess
1: uh, it's because Turkey is being seen as one of these uh, emerging regional players, uh, countries which have resources, ambition, you know, political ambition and plan to and willingness to position themselves as, uh, you know, some kind of new uh, regional uh, super state, you know, that has some kind that has an ambition to become more and more active and have and play a bigger role in intra-regional and regional uh, developments and I think this is how this is how Turkey is being seen around the world and this is certainly how Turkey is seen in Ukraine.
0: But why particularly in Ukraine? I mean we know that Turkey's selling drones to Ukraine has quite intense and growing military cooperation with Ukraine. So clearly within the current uh, context with this threat of a Russian invasion, obviously it's beyond what you just described. Do, you, do, do these drones really make a difference?
1: Uh, well, there are several reasons for uh, this view uh, of Turkey from Ukraine. One is of course uh, the drone issue uh, well, they they're not making any military difference in uh, well in, in in the military context right now. Well, because they haven't been uh, used often, you know, infrequently in in, in, uh, in the conflict in the in, in eastern regions. But of course, it is they have a pretty uh, huge political and psychological impact, you know, on, on Ukrainian public opinion because the public sees Turkey as the country who provides Ukraine with with weaponry, which is advanced and pretty good enough to maintain the military balance uh, between Ukraine and Russia and pro-Russian forces in the east. So, of course, uh, this this is the first reason. It's like Turkey is being seen as the country, a potential ally, military ally against Russia, or if not military ally, because, but at least a political one, who can help Ukrainian military uh, sector to and, and Ukrainian army to modernize. The second reason is, of course, Turkey's uh, regional stance. I mean, Ukrainians are pretty active uh, while surfing the net and news about Turkey, what is Turkey doing, how Turkish president positions himself on international arena, what does he say, and and well, the Turkish media are pretty active in Ukraine. So we have. So I I could say that at least in big cities there is a big uh, a high level of awareness about what Turkey does on in the international arena, and many people like that. They like a country, They see Turkey as the country which is rising, you know, and trying to play a more active role in international relations and defend their national interests. And actually, the mere fact that they have national interests, you know, very, very concrete, specific, this is something that Ukraine lacks. And of course, many people in Ukraine, they see Turkey as the country which Ukraine should have uh being you know a, a strong country which knows their its national interest and knows how to defend it and the third reason is of course uh that turkey is you know a country which everybody knows about i mean because of tourists i mean ukrainians are a one of the most uh, fast growing uh, markets for turkey you know as tourist wise like 15% of all tourists for example in turkish antalya are Ukrainians and uh, this is this is a huge number and the Ukrainians were among the biggest groups uh, of tourists coming to Turkey every year for several years now so of course this is very uh, easy for everyone to know you know where is turkey what is turkey and also because of uh, this uh, because of, i think i think president erdogan's image himself is also something that uh, influences the view of Turkey in Ukraine, because, well, let's say Ukrainian society is predominantly more conservative, you know, in some ways, at least, uh, at least in a way they see how politics should be played, and of course, uh, with the the view here is that we don't have uh, this kind of a strong man who can lead us to any, any anywhere. That's why Erdogan uh, is someone uh, who is seen positively in Ukrainian society, you know, as a leader, as a strong leader who can, again, defend his country, who can stand up for his country. And this is what, again, drives this positive dynamic in uh, Turkish image in Ukraine. So I, I will place So I think these three reasons, they are the, the, the major ones.
0: Well, um, several points. First of all, uh, in terms of the drones, they're not using them, as you said, very much, though they did use them once, uh, initially in October when the Russian, uh, sorry, when the Ukrainian soldier died out there in uh, the Donbas. And so Ukrainian forces retaliated using the drone for the first time. But I think uh, uh, overall they're refraining from using them because they don't want to be seen as provoking Russia, right? There's uh, that, but beyond that, um, in the if, if Russia decided to actually invade Ukraine, most military analysts would agree that the drones will ultimately not have that much of an impact, correct? But in the context of this low intensity conflict being waged by the pro-Russian forces, yes, the drones can be useful, they help certainly gather a lot of intelligence. Um, On the tourism point we also hear a lot of ukrainians say that you know if indeed russia attacks with all those russian tourists that also go to turkey how are we going to go there and share the same space and on your final point about erdogan being so popular i mean aren't ukrainians aware also that turkey has a terrible human rights record and that back at home Erdogan is viewed, you know, at least by nearly half of the people as as an autocrat. Well,
1: uh, there is, again, yes, uh, everyone everyone is aware that Turkey is not a full democracy, is not a genuine democracy, and Erdogan is not a democratic leader. But for for many Ukrainians, it's not the most important part when they see it. I mean, especially now with the current political uh, situation here, and this is a situation of a chronic political turbulence and with social and economic problems we're having, now with energy problems that we have also because of the hike in gas prices in Europe, uh, there is a great need uh, well, well, there is a great need in a new strong leader. So uh, not, not I, I, I even think not necessarily a very democratic one. You know, if you would analyze what are the most popular leaders, foreign, foreign leaders in, for Ukrainians, uh, last year, uh, one of the most popular was Andrzej Duda, president of Poland. Uh, again, oh, wow. I, I don't need I don't need to <laughs> to no, no. Uh, yeah, explain to you what is the image of Poland in Western European view, of course. But here, I mean, we see Pol- Poles and you know, their their party is as a successful one. I mean, again, they have problems with democracy. They have problems with different, for example, the d- judicial reform, which is being criticized among the European Union. But again. Uh, they have this kind of uh, attitude which is very positively been perceived by Ukrainians. Before 2020 political crisis in Belarus, Lukashenko, president of Belarus, was for many years one of the most popular leaders in, in, in Ukraine. again, because of this because we are neighbors, because we speak the same language, because we understand. I mean his approach, when, for example, he was filming himself uh, inspecting different, uh factories you know and uh throwing out directors of these factories for corruption on tv and this was very i mean this kind of shows they were they were they are really really uh they were possible positively uh, perceived by ukrainians because this is something that in our country many people want actually well so, you
0: know, but now belarus yeah. is sort of uh seems to be on Russia's side and could be a potential staging ground uh, for part of an invasion. Uh, but you touched upon energy. And during our conversation in Kiev, you described TurkStream, this pipeline running from Russia to Turkey that's supposed to eventually carry gas to Europe as a stab in the back. Uh, how does that chime with Turkey's images, this country that's an ally of Ukraine that's helping it? uh, balance Russian influence?
1: Well, no one actually considers this to be some, you know, something very bad because again, uh, first of all, uh, Turk's is a very long story. So it, it, it began in mid 2000s when the first plans to construct a pipeline were drawn up and actually, well, of course, uh, this story was, uh, Negatively perceived only by some in the Ukrainian government. I mean, the general public, again, if you're if, if you if you're speaking about the general public, uh, the energy issues are too difficult for them to, to understand. I mean, for example, it's really difficult to explain to people that uh, Turk Stream and Nord Stream 2 are well, interconnected in a way. I mean, of course, these are separate projects, but they are connected because both projects are, are about supplying gas uh, circumventing, I mean, uh, around Ukraine, so not, not like uh, weakening our transit potential. But again, since we have war with Russia, not with Turkey, and uh, that Russia is the main uh, bad guy, of course, I mean, such stories as the Turk stream, they are not being perceived as very bad. So uh, again, I'm not here to say that Turkey is being idealized in Ukraine at some point. Of course, there are some uh, problems in bilateral relations. We have our own differences, uh, especially in trade. For example, now with the
0: free trade agreement. Why don't you uh, tell us a bit about that? Because that was something that you raised about local businessmen feeling threatened by this free trade agreement. Can you tell our audience why that is? Yes.
1: Well, I will start with the, again, I will start with the the three main uh, points of cooperation between Turkey and Ukraine so that everyone will will understand what our bilateral relations look like, actually. So besides all these media and, you know, like media person stories. So the three, uh, the first one is the military cooperation, which I have already mentioned, and especially uh, the manufacturing of aircraft engines. Uh, Ukrainian companies uh, make these engines for Turkish drones, and uh, now they are going to make them for for, uh, uh, heavy helicopter, military helicopters and also for another project of an unmanned aircraft, uh, which is called MIUS. And the second uh, field of cooperation is actually trade and uh, infrastructure. Uh, Turkey is among top uh, investors in Ukrainian economy and Turkish construction companies are very active in the so-called huge construction or big construction program. It's a presidential program aimed at building and renovating roads mainly in Ukraine and Turkish companies are very active here. And the third field of cooperation is the political, uh, uh, you know, the political solidarity between Ukraine and Turkey on the issue of Crimea, the occupation of Crimea and uh, uh, human rights violations of the Crimean Peninsula, especially against uh, Crimean Tatar community. Now, the problem uh, of of the of Turkish-Ukrainian bilateral relations is that they are limited in many spheres. So, for example, in the military field, as I said, they are limited; they are confined to only this particular uh, programs, like a- aircraft engines. So, they are not being. Um, Developed very uh, steadily in other fields. The second, for example, the lim- and also in trade, they are limited by the amount of goods we can ex- we can uh, offer each other. For example, now the bilateral trade between Turkey and Ukraine is around five billion dollars. Uh, they want to make it up to ten billion. This is what was uh, this is the target uh, Turkish and Ukrainian sides uh selected you know for further cooperation and here uh, we have a big problem uh, there is actually Turkish economy and Ukrainian economy are very different and uh, Turkish economy is more sophisticated more uh you know complex than Ukrainian one the Ukrainian was more is simpler and more primitive to some extent we uh, our main export categories like more, more than 50 percent of Ukraine's exports are raw materials and of course, uh, the free trade agreement, which uh, the two sides are going to sign, I think in, again, they announced it last year that they will sign it at the beginning of this year. So maybe uh, by Erdogan, with, with Erdogan visiting Kiev, they're going to sign it, I don't know. The free trade agreement, the problem of it is that many local producers, local manufacturers in Ukraine, they fear that Turkey, uh, will gain access to our market, to Ukrainian market, and of course, this will be a very, a, a strike, you know, a very heavy blow for them, because Turkey's, Turkey, with all their companies, with all their resources, with the support the state, uh, the Turkish state gives to their companies, while promoting their products. And uh, they will will just lose uh, their positions and lose their jobs. And of course, that's why, for example, there are a lot of concern here, uh, especially among uh, cement industry companies, agricultural uh, companies, among our manufacturers in uh, light industry, especially textile, They think that Turkey will overtake our market. Of course, we don't know that for sure, because again, everyone is waiting for the agreement to be signed and for their conditions to be announced because no one knows what actually uh, was being negotiated. And I will remind remind you that the negotiations of the free trade agreement between Turkey and Ukraine has been going on for 10 years. I think it's 11 years this year. Yeah,
0: it's been a long time. Yeah,
1: very long time.
0: But shifting back to the the Russian threat, how concerned do you think Russia is about this Ukrainian-Turkish love affair?
1: I think uh, the only thing that concerns Russia about it is uh, the military uh, cooperation. But again, I don't think that right now uh, our cooperation, uh, this level of cooperation between Turkey and Ukraine bothers Russia that much. I mean, I don't think they see it as a critical threat for them because nothing fundamental happened yet. Uh, the drones which Turkey provided to Ukraine, which Ukraine purchased actually, uh, yes, they are a pretty uh, you know an irritant for Russia and actually they are when when the drone was used a couple of months ago, in uh, near donbass in the eastern regions russia's reaction was pretty harsh <clears throat> but again uh, since these drones do not uh, change fundamental change the military balance of powers between ukraine and russia of course i don't think moscow is really concerned about what is going on
0: So, Erdogan has proposed to mediate between the Kremlin and Ukraine. And we just recently heard that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is going to travel to Turkey after the Beijing Olympics. It's a bit vague, but the Kremlin announced this. Do you think that there is a a, a role for Turkey? Uh, Is it, do you think the Kremlin would, for instance, welcome that, or what about Zelensky? Can Turkey make a difference?
1: Well, for Zelensky, of course, Turkey's proposal is, uh, well, it's pretty fine, it's good, uh, because uh, uh, Ukrainian authorities appeared to, uh, struck a dead end on our negotiations with Russia, and really anything you could, is better than nothing. And I think they are tended well, they they will be happy to accept this proposal. Actually, there were there were statements from some of Ukrainian officials who accepted, who said that this will be a good idea to uh, accept the mediation proposal by Erdogan. For Turkey, it is very important because I see that uh, Turkey's uh, Turkey's uh, government and Erdogan himself want, want to portray themselves as this kind of new regional power that has to have. A, a vote in something that they can influence different processes like they did in Nagorno-Karabakh, like they are doing in Libya and Syria and now in Ukraine. And, but for Russia, I think, uh, well, their first reaction, as I remember, was negative and they actually refused to, uh, they refused to accept uh, Turkey's offer. Uh, now, latest statements I was analyzing from them, they were softer. And uh, I think, I think at some extent, they could uh, accept this proposal so as to meet with Zelensky, but only after Russia will close their negotiations with the Americans, because this is what is important for them. Uh, Russian, you need to, to understand that Russia since 2020, when the last talks, meaningful talks on negotiations between Ukraine and Russia failed, they stopped uh, seeing Ukrainian government and Zelensky personally as serious negotiators. And they actually n- today, Russia doesn't talk to Zelensky. Putin doesn't isn't talking about to Zelensky, to Ukrainian audience or to Ukrainian government. He's talking to the Americans. And this is most important part for him and so i think turkey's turkey's proposal is just one of alternative path for putin to meet with Zelensky, but only in case when he will have some promises from the americans and from the west about what how we deal with ukraine and that's all now can turkey make a difference on our issue no i think no because uh well, the problem with Ukrainian-Russian relations and these negotiations around, Ukraine, around conflict between Ukraine and Russia in the East is not about where the negotiations uh, are held. So, I mean, uh, you, can help, you, can, you can organize them in Minsk, in Budapest, in, in Istanbul. It doesn't matter because, again, the problem is not who is the mediator or where do the leaders meet. The problem is that we have absolutely different views. I mean, Ukraine and Russia has a, have absolutely different views on how to solve the conflict, on the nature of the conflict, and on the on ways to implement the so-called Minsk agreements, the peace uh, settlement that was signed in 2015. So this is the main problem, and I don't see any initiatives from Turkish side uh, on how to change, you know. Change it on how to practically implement the agreement so that uh, to resolve this issue. So only the the only thing I see is that Erdogan is willing to just organize a meeting, but the meeting itself will, is not interesting for is not interesting for Russia. First of all, and secondly, it will not. I don't think it will settle all the differences that uh, exist between Russia and Ukraine in uh, perception, you know, of our conflict.
0: Well, maybe it's also to make sure that, you know, Putin has the opportunity to tell Turkey personally uh, how he'd feel if, you know, Turkey abandoned its neutrality and, for instance, joined in any sanctions, because, as we all know, when Russia invaded Crimea or annexed it. Uh, Turkey did not join those sanctions. So perhaps, you know, that's something that Putin expects him not to do again, if he actually proceeds with an invasion. So my last question is one that you probably won't like at all. But I have to ask, uh, what do you think Putin will do?
1: Well, yeah, not that I don't like it, it's just very, you know, it's a hard question because everyone is asking this question right now in Ukraine, you know, and, and beyond, but it's really, uh, it's very difficult to forecast, or to make a, a very good forecast actually on that. I think, well, in my opinion, I think there are three scenarios of what is uh, going on with Ukraine in the nearest uh, month. The first one is that nothing will change. So Russia and the United States will negotiate, will finalize their negotiation. Maybe they will reach some compromise, some several compromises on issues not directly related to Ukraine. Maybe they will reach compromise on Ukraine, on Ukraine's uh, non-ascension to NATO. We we call this scenario hybrid peace. So it's like peace, but not peace at all, because we still have this shelling in the east, but still. It is this semi, semi-stable, semi fragile situation of uh, where we are, where we have been for eight years. The second scenario is uh, another military escalation, which Russia is said to be, you know, is expected to prepare. If Russia will make a decision to uh, strike Ukraine, uh, I think it will not be a total... You know, full-blown war, I doubt that this is uh, what they want. I think it will, they will head for a small, uh, fast military operation just to show the West that they are eager and willing to use force if they, so not only to, to talk, but also to use force when they want. Uh, in this case, again, everything is very difficult to forecast because, you know, after that, military mi- the militaries will decide what what will be next. And the third scenario is uh, when is a compromise between, uh, you know, Ukraine, United West, Russia, about the situation and about the Minsk agreements. This is what what is what many people and many my many of my colleagues also are talking about that the uh, well that both western uh, countries and russia uh, they could compromise on the way of how to implement the minsk agreements which ukraine you know is reluctant to uh, implement that in the way they are written now because they are absolutely written in a way which is not very beneficial to ukraine strategically but still, uh, there is a possibility they will compromise on that and then they will just tell Ukraine that, OK, so we decided we, you should implement these agreements in this way, so please do that. And uh, again, this is uh, a very difficult uh, option, a very difficult scenario because uh, many, there are many subjective factors that could play here. Uh, from protests of part of the society which do not want Ukrainian government to implement these agreements to uh, political and economic consequences of uh, implement after implementing them. So I think these, these three are basic scenarios of how can this end? And I'm not sure that Turkey will have a crucial role in each of these. I mean, I think, I still think that Turkey will remain somewhat neutral to this situation, because I see, again, the Erdogan's proposal is another indicator that he doesn't want this to escalate. So I think, you know, to project these scenarios on Turkey's interests, I think they will be interested uh, either in the scenario one or three. So everything not involving military escalation will be okay for Ankara.
0: Well, Ilya, that was a fascinating conversation and we thank you so very much for joining us and we desperately hope that peace will prevail. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Elizabeth
0: Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor.
1: And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sit through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you.
0: If you care about the Middle East and North Africa,
1: you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series On the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our
0: newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms.
1: And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, DC, Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with
0: first-class reporting and analysis. So that brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed the show, and let's all pray that peace prevails. Thank you, and see you soon.